in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Two brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, John Flack and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello and welcome to the Retro Movie Roundtable. I'm your host, Russell Guest. And today, joining me, my good friend and co-host, John Flack. John, how are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I am pumped. I'm so pumped because I think this is going to be the best show we've done yet. I say that every episode, but I really mean it this time. Because today, we've got my wonderful wife, Mary, joining us on the podcast. Mary, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for enjo- for inviting me on this podcast. I'm excited about getting into this movie with you guys. Let's get to know our guest here a little bit. Um, I know her pretty well, but for those who don't, uh, Mary, we're doing a superhero movie today. Who's your favorite superhero? Uh, my favorite superhero, I think... I'm going to have to go with Spider-Man. Uh, he was my favorite as a kid. I always had to watch Spider-Man cartoon on Saturday morning. So I think that he's consistently over the years been my favorite. Okay. Okay. And so th- we're doing a Tim Burton movie. Do you have a favorite Tim Burton movie? Oh, that's a hard one. I'm a huge fan of Tim Burton. I would probably have to go with Edward Scissorhands. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with that. And it's also, uh, is it because of the shrubbery, the (laughs) big fan of the shrubbery and the haircuts. Um, it's a Tim Burton and it's also, uh, a Danny Elfman score. So that's a winning combination for me. Well, we've got another winning combination then here. Um, so, uh, one more here. Uh, what was the most excited you came out of a movie theater like probably at a young age like like what was like what what did you come out of the theater most excited about uh probably depends on what you define as young age uh i would say probably the most excited i've ever been at a movie was when i actually got to see the re-release of star wars a new hope that was a packed movie theater it was standing room only and it was absolutely magical um, I was in middle school, I think, when that was re-released, uh, 12, 13 years old, and I would say that that's probably my best, uh, movie theater moment. Great. Can I ask real quick, did, did you think the CGI added to it took anything away from that? I do think that it didn't need it. it it was perfect the first time and i kind of on the school of thought that there was no reason to go back and retouch it but it's not broken to, don't fix it yeah but to actually have the experience 
of getting to see those movies in the theater. I'm glad that they did that. So you're saying we don't need to go back and CGI in other great movies, like in The Wizard of Oz, like there weren't enough munchkins, so maybe we get some more of them and, you know, or like, you know, like CGI some, more munchkins. Some more flying monkeys into the movie. I think that that uh, definitely is not something that needed to be done. Okay. Okay. I agree. No extra munchkins for you then. <laughs> um, not a fan of that. So have you seen any movies lately? Uh, recently saw two movies. Um, uh, we, I guess, just recorded, uh, The Three Amigos on the DVR. I hadn't ever actually seen that movie. Uh, you know, Steve Martin, uh, Martin Short, and, uh, Chevy Chase. Um, that is a really weird movie, but it's a whole lot of fun, so... Um, I do recommend it. Uh, we also red-boxed the latest Jurassic Park movie, Jurassic World. Fallen Kingdom. Uh. John says, uh. <laughs> we'll table this for later, but I did not hate it like John did. John, John did not I care for this movie. I hate it. It just... Uh. Our, our household maybe uh, was a bigger fan of it than you, John. It had Chris Pratt and it had uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. So I think that was a winning combination they did great. in our house. They did great. I'll give them that. <laughs> That's true. Beautiful people help. You say Chris Pratt and I'm in. <laughs> so, um, all right. Today we're going to do Batman Returns. Uh, it's 1992, Tim Burton movie. Opening weekend, it grossed $45.6 million, which is a record for its first two days in the box office at that time. It grossed, it went on to gross $162.8 million. Uh, all of this is according to Box Office Mojo. It came in third uh, on the year. Uh, the movie pl uh, came in behind Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, another sequel, and it placed ahead of Lethal Weapon 3. Uh, it has an IMDb rating of 7.0, and the critics of Rotten Tomatoes give it 79%, and the audience score is actually a little bit lower at 73%, so uh, an unusual case of a blockbuster movie having a higher critic score than audience score. So, John, give me some of your expectations uh, coming into this one. Had you seen it before? If so, what were your thoughts coming back to it now? I had seen it before. Uh... Interestingly enough, uh, I didn't catch it in theaters, but it is the first VHS I was ever gifted uh, by someone. Uh, one of my mom's friends got it for me, and I watched it, I can't tell you how many times, absolutely loved it. I, I, I loved the first one, and that's probably why I got that as a gift. And, you know, I loved it so much as a kid. I, it had been a while since I'd watched it, so I was kind of nervous coming back to it that I might find some things wrong with it. Uh, so I tried to temper my expectations a little bit, but I wasn't disappointed. Uh, so, so when was the last time you saw it? The last time I saw it before this, it had been at least 15 years. Uh, I, I'd hate to say, which is kind of sad. I'd watched uh, the first Tim Burton Batman quite a few times since then, but Maybe since uh, I didn't have a VCR for a long time and had no copy of it, but this gave me a wonderful excuse to buy it. And maybe those uh, two movies after it, particularly the fourth one, maybe sullied my image of going back to, to look at the older Batman franchise. But I'm really glad I got to go back and watch it again. Yeah, and 
Yeah, Mary, what, what was your thought? Like, when, when did you first see this one? Or have you seen this one before? Well, I'm being told by my family that I actually saw this one in the theaters. And somehow I remember the movie, but I guess didn't necessarily remember that I was in the theater for it. Uh, so that was uh, quite some time ago, obviously. I uh, then rewatched it with Russell sometime in college, so maybe 12 years ago or something like that. Um, kind of rediscovered the movie at that point in time. Um, and really I'm very fond of this movie so when I got to rewatch it uh this week um I guess I had forgotten how much I really loved it and maybe see it with a slightly different lens now and actually love it even more than I realized I'm with Mary I I, uh, I saw I definitely remember seeing it in theaters uh when I was seven years old and I loved it uh, I really loved the first one and um I probably hadn't seen it since we saw it together in college. Now, I have since then, oddly enough, seen pretty much every other Batman movie since then. Somehow, this is the one that fell through the cracks, which is one reason why I wanted to shortlist this one and then uh, bring it bring it up again. Um, I, I love the Jack Nicholson and uh, Michael Keaton 1989 Batman, and um, I don't know why it's been so long I've been away from here. The longer I got from it, the more I told myself it was messy, it had too many villains, and it didn't all come together. And when I came back to it, I was really pleasantly surprised to be like, wow, this is very, very, very good. And um, I, a lot of my criticisms weren't even accurate anymore. So uh, it actually washed away a lot of my criticisms. I mean, uh, I don't know. Maybe some of my post impressions of the Batman and Robin or Batman Forever uh, were carrying over onto this. So, uh, and I, I like Batman Forever. It's obviously several steps down from these first two Burton movies, but uh, so yeah, I was very, um, I had almost forgotten about it. So it was, it was, I was curious coming back to it, and I, I was really happy. So, we'll be back after these messages. Greetings, Gotham. It is I, Bane, here to take your ears from the corrupt, away from the oppressors of generations who have kept you from hearing about the movies you love most. We give it to you, the people. None shall interfere. Listen as you please. The show is yours. Step forward. Those who would serve for an army of movie lovers will be raised. Start by storming the gates of iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, and give the show a rating and review. Like the show on Facebook, email at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Movies will be watched, insights will be shared, fun will be had. Great movies will endure. The Retro Movie Roundtable will survive. This is the instrument of your liberation. Gotham! Take back your podcasts. This is the part of the show where we have to remind everybody, though, that we got to spoil these movies to have a good time and really talk about them. They're over 10 years old, so it's fair game. So if you haven't seen Batman Returns, do yourself a huge favor. Go back, watch it now, and then come back in and finish this episode. So, that being said, Mary, would you like to give us a plot outline of Batman Returns? Sure, I will give you an outline. Uh, a lot happens in this movie, so bear with me on this. 33 years ago, Tucker and Esther Cobblepot give birth to a deformed baby boy named Oswald. 
Disgusted by his appearance and violent behavior, they cage the baby, but ultimately throw him into the stream in the abandoned Gotham Zoo. Baby Oswald flows into a sewer where he grows up amongst the zoo penguins. Fast forward to present-day Gotham, millionaire Max Schreck unsuccessfully attempts to overcome the mayor's opposition to build a power plant for Gotham City. His timid secretary, Selina Kyle, speaks out of place and is dismissed during this meeting. Later, Shrek makes a public appearance at the lighting of the Gotham Christmas tree. The penguin watches from the sewer. As soon as Max finishes his speech, the circus-themed Red Triangle Gang attack the masses and kidnap Shrek. Batman comes to the rescue and saves Selina Kyle in the process. The penguin blackmails Shrek with the evidence of his crimes, with the intent of Shrek helping him to emerge and be accepted by the people of Gotham. Max reluctantly complies. Upon returning to his office, Shrek finds Selina in his classified files, and she has uncovered the plot to use the new power plant to drain Gotham of its energy and bring the city under Shrek's control. Max pushes, pushes her out of the window to eliminate her. Miraculously, Selina survives the fall and returns home and snaps as she creates the dominant persona of Catwoman. The Penguin makes his debut by staging a kidnapping and rescuing the mayor's baby. Bruce Wayne watches suspiciously on TV as the Penguin is granted access to City Hall's records uh, in order to find his parents. Shrek pitches his power plant idea to Bruce Wayne, but Bruce sides with the mayor. Max is surprised as a more confident Selina Kyle walks in to escort him out. Bruce takes an immediate liking to her. In order to advance his power plant, Shrek asks the Penguin to discredit the current mayor and then replace him as mayor of Gotham. Batman stops Catwoman as she attempts to sabotage one of Shrek's businesses. Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle begin a romantic relationship. The Penguin and Catwoman plot against Batman. They abduct and kill Gotham's Ice Princess and frame Batman while sabotaging his Batmobile. Catwoman rejects the Penguin's romantic advances and he attempts to kill her with a flying umbrella. The next day, the Penguin gives a speech to uh, the Gotham people as a political candidate, but Batman overrides the audio to play incriminating lines from the Penguin that he recorded from his Batmobile. With his public image destroyed, Penguin rages into the sewer where he reveals his plan to abduct and kill all of Gotham's firstborn sons. At a charity ball, Wayne and Kyle meet and discover each other's secret identities. The Penguin appears, announces his plan, and tries to take Shrek's son, Chip. He ends up taking Shrek instead. The Penguin plans to have his army of penguins bomb the city and kill thousands. Batman rushes to the scene and jams the signal, controlling the Penguin army. 
and foils the plans. Batman meets and finds the penguin in the sewer. Shrek escapes his cage but is stopped by Catwoman. Batman pleads for Catwoman to stop. He unmasks himself in the process and offers for Selina to come home and live with him. She wants to, but turns him down because she knows she is too damaged to go back to a normal life. Shrek draws a gun, shoots Wayne, and then shoots Kyle multiple times. She survives and then electrocutes both of them. Wayne recovers to find Shrek's remains, but not Catwoman's. The penguin emerges from the water, but promptly dies from his injuries. In the aftermath, as Alfred drives Bruce home, Wayne asks him to stop. Wayne runs into the alley, hoping to find Selina, but only finds her black cat. The bat signal appears in the sky, and we see a surviving Catwoman standing in the foreground. Wow, thank you for that. That's, that there is a lot going on in there. Um... So I think you've got it well covered. How about you, John? Yeah, yeah. It's a complicated movie to cover in a short time. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting about the story that Batman is not really central uh, to the focus. They made a distinct decision to make this uh, mainly about uh, Catwoman and secondarily about the Penguin and and maybe Batman secondarily. It's, uh, it's a smart move uh, for a sequel movie. Um, I don't know if you agree on that. On that, uh, I, I I do. I, I think it does a good job of really kind of letting the whole cast have their own story arcs, and uh, it's a pretty clever move on Burton's part and the the writing staff. Um, one thing I want to add is uh, this: Burton has once again veered heavily from the comic book uh, source material. I would argue it's better. Um, I think just a real quick uh, while we're on the plot now, uh, the Penguin in the DC Comics uh, from 1941, which was created by Bob King and Bill Finger, uh, was uh, that he was a bullied child of short stature, heavy, and just walked and had a beak-like nose. Uh, and that uh, several stories relate that he was uh, forced as a child to always carry an umbrella by his overprotective mother for fear that he would get a pneumonia uh, from going out like his father who died. Um, so he, his only friends growing up were birds and his love of ornithology in college, um, it led him away from people and more towards birds. And, um, in some versions, he, uh, turns to crime after his mother dies and the bird shop, uh, the birds are repossessed and, uh, taken away from him to pay her debts. So, you know, he's, uh, got nothing and he turns to crime. Uh, that's not as interesting in my opinion as this deformed penguin. What do you think, Mary? Oh, that's an interesting uh, plot line, too, but I, I do think that the, the whole being raised by penguins um, that used to live at the zoo thing is really kind of unique, and I kind of like that story. What about you, John? I think we have a scarier villain here from Burton than from the comics. I think so, too, and I think more than that, um, I kind of like that both of our so-called vi villains that have alternate identities... Um, they have a bit more of a tragic arc. It's not, uh, it, it's not as black and white as in the first installment where the, the Joker was just already a very bad person, but both of our alternate identities, villains in this one had 
bad things happen to them that made them this way, which is a great way to balance out Batman because that's how he became Batman. Something bad happened to him. It also makes the villains um, a lot more relatable that we can understand why they are the way they are. Yeah. Precisely. And I'm going to go down that same track with uh, Catwoman. Uh, She's from 1940 in DC Comics, again, created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Uh, This one's a little more of a complicated history. There's more rewrites. Um, But if you go back to the uh, older versions, she's born in Gotham. Her mother commits suicide. Her father drinks himself to death. She runs away, lives on the streets, becoming a skilled cat burglar and later a pet store owner. Um, So she is known at first as the cat. And um, she always attracts and antagonizes Batman at the same time. Um, so Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle have a very intertwined, um, romance and complicated history throughout the comics. But, uh, again, I like this better. I don't know if it's because it's more updated for the nineties or whatnot, but I just, I, I, again, I thought this was a lot more interesting. Um, I liked her becoming unhinged from just being stepped on every day and then she lashed back out. What do you think? Yeah, just like. Oh yeah, that's that's something that makes the character very uh, relatable to me. Yeah, and John, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it, exactly what Mary said. It, it makes them more r- relatable. It's like you you can sympathize with them a little bit as opposed to just outright dislike them. Yeah. So, John, run us through the cast here real quick. All right. Well, we have Michael Keaton reprising his role as Bruce Wayne. Slash Batman. Uh, he's our caped crusader, our title character, and defender of Gotham. We have uh, Danny DeVito as Oswald Cobblepot, also the Penguin, who is uh, a deformed child that is raised by wolves that look like penguins uh, to become kind of a demented character. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer plays... The lovely Selena Kyle uh, stepped on and taken advantage of to become Catwoman, who is more of a femme fatale, sassy, and I'd have to say sexy, antithesis to Batman. And then we have the wonderful Christopher Walken playing Max Shrek, who is also the Santa Claus of Gotham, who likes energy and thinks there's never a surplus and wants to make the penguin into a wonderful political figure. So, sorry for my bad Christopher Walken impression, but I couldn't help myself. And we have Michael Goh as Alfred Pennyworth, the loyal butler to the Wayne family who has raised Bruce since the death of his parents, uh, who is the only one who can kind of keep Bruce in check to maintaining his Bruce Wayne human persona. Uh, Pat Hingle also reprises his role as Commissioner James Gordon. So grumpy. Uh, yeah, j- just a very grumpy person, but does does it very well. Uh, Michael Murphy plays the mayor who, as I could tell, actually never had a name, uh, who is trying to be ousted by Max Shrek because he opposes his energy plan. And uh, we also have Pee Wee Herman, or Paul Rubens, playing (laughs) the Penguin's father, Tucker Cobblepot, uh, who 
decides to abandon his son after he realizes he might be a threat after, I think, eating their cat. I I think he did eat the cat. Yeah. Also, uh, Tim Burton directs Pee Wee. So a little bit of a callback. Pee Wee Herman's big adventure. Yeah, Tim Burton likes to work with the same people over and over again. Uh, No Helena Bonham Carter this time, but uh, Pee Wee comes back. Ha ha! Is there anyone I left out that you all feel the need to add? (laughs) Penguin, maybe. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I actually didn't recognize him until you pointed out, John. (laughs) It was his monocle. I mean, right. The monocle (laughs) threw me off, I guess. (laughs) Okay. And so, apparently, I didn't know this until then, but he apparently appeared as Penguin's father in the new show, which I've never watched, Gotham. I had a few casting notes on this. Uh, Danny DeVito apparently was advised by Jack Nicholson uh, yes. to take to take this role, saying uh, it's very financially lucrative to be a villain in a blockbuster movie like this. So uh, he got a little tip of uh, tip from Jack, and I'm glad he took it because he was really good in this. Um, and there were a lot of other big names who were considered for the role. Yeah. And uh, Dustin Hoffman was originally the first choice. Yeah, yeah. And I, he's a great actor, but I can't imagine anybody other than DeVito. I mean, I'm going to go through a list here, but I mean, Dudley Moore, Marlon Brando, John Candy, Bob Hoskins, Ralph Waite, Dean Martin, Alan Rickman, Phil Collins, uh, Charles Grodin, Ben Kingsley, John Goodman, Christopher Lee, Joe Pesci, Ray Liotta, Gabriel Byrne, uh, Alex Rocco, uh, Rocco, uh, Christopher Lloyd, Kevin Pollack, Robert Davi, apparently all have connections to possibly being casted for this role. Now there could have been some great ones. I, I just I'm so happy that I like Genesis, but Phil Collins playing that role, oh, I could not have imagined that. Um, it's kind yeah. of hard to imagine any of them because DeVito has done this role so amazingly. It's kind of hard to imagine any of them in the role. Phil Collins is the one I have the hardest time seeing. I could just <laughs> yeah, for some I reason I can just see him with an umbrella going, "I can't dance, I can't sing. Only thing I got my parasailing swing." <laughs> I turned him into Dave Matthews there for some reason at the end, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, that one just doesn't fit to me. Yeah, I was going to say, some of the other ones I could see. I could definitely see, you know, maybe Joe Pesci or Bob Hoskins. I think maybe Pesci would have been good. Yeah, but say Pesci would have been probably the top of my list. But uh, the other ones are accomplished actors, but it's like Phil Collins. Like, what what, what do you have to offer acting-wise for a major role, not just a throw-in role? Um, so... Uh... Michelle Pfeiffer was one of the actresses actually considered to be Vicki Vale in the previous 1989 Batman movie, which was kind of fun. So she didn't win that role, but she got an even bigger role. I'd say she came out of this deal pretty good. Um, so that was a fun fact. And uh, there were a what? lot of people considered to be Catwoman as well. Well, and she was uh, not picked originally. She was uh, apparently kind of devastated when she wasn't. But Annette Benning was originally cast, but she became pregnant and wasn't able to do the role. Also, Gina Davis was offered the role, and she turned it down. Hmm. She had to be in a league of her own instead at that time. So, Which, that turned out pretty good for everybody yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, Great movie. But, I mean, there, again, there's a long list of people who are considered to be Catwoman. Brooke Shields, Sigourney Weaver, Lena Olin, uh, Madonna, Raquel Welsh, Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, 
uh, Ellen Barkin, uh, Cher, Bridget Fonda, Jennifer Beale, Kim Cattrall, Reba McIntyre, Meg Ryan, Gina Davis, Demi Moore, Nicole Kidman. All Who of these got considered. As- playing in the next movie yeah nicole kidman similar to michelle pfeiffer kind of uh, out of the consideration role kind of came out okay and got to be in batman forever so um again i think they picked well here i mean it's just such a staggering list of people i i have i you know in doing research for this i had to wonder how many of these people were just barely mentioned at a table versus were given serious consideration so but apparently dustin hoffman and gina davis and uh uh, a few others were more heavily considered, but I think they came out okay in the end. And then, um, yeah. and then another interesting choice. Uh, one last one was uh, singer David Bowie had been, previously been considered to play the Joker in the 1989 Batman instead of Nicholson, um, which would have been interesting. But I can't imagine doing any better than Jack Nicholson in that. But uh, he was again brought back in and considered to be uh, Max Shrek uh, instead of Christopher walkin um so bowie turned down the role in favor of uh twin peaks uh fire walk with me in 1992 so all right yeah so let's talk about the film creation here a little bit let's 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 uh what do we think about tim burton in this movie i think he has a lot to do with the the success and the feel of this movie what do we think about tim burton and batman returns and as a director in general john Yep. Uh, you know, I, I, I think he did a fantastic job. I I like the fact that he seemed so hesitant to make a sequel because, you know, let's be honest, making a sequel, directors don't often return for it, especially if there's a lot of success with the first one. And uh, I believe his quote was, uh, I, I'll return if the sequel offers something new and exciting. Otherwise, it's a most dumbfounded idea, unquote, from what he said. And it it has such a different direction than the first movie, but it has the same feel. Like, I like how he did Gotham. It's dark. It's got an almost old or archaic feel to to the city. Um, and he nails it pretty well. As I said, it's I, I like that the villains were had a different type of story arc than how the Joker's was in the first one. Uh, so it, it's still kind of its own movie. It doesn't just follow the same outline of the first one. And I really respect that. And I can see why he decided to return after he got maybe the ideas and the script and, and Bob Kane was on to be a consultant uh, for, for Sam Hamm. And I'm, I just think Tim Burton nailed it. The casting is great. Uh, I can't say enough about him. I mean, I think Tim Burton uh, really knows how to make a great superhero movie. I think it's a shame we didn't get a trilogy out of this somehow. Um, they gave him a ton of creative control in order to get him back. And I think it paid heavy dividends. I mean, he clearly made them a lot of money, but also, I think one of the things that Tim Burton's style just does so well for Batman in particular is that he knows how to use the darkness. He knows how to find the good in the darkness, whether it be the happy, funny side of the darkness and the nightmare before Christmas, or whether it be to find compassion into an outcast character like Edward and Edward Scissorhands. 
And I think Batman is another great example that just lends himself to what Tim Burton does so well. He is a he he is born of darkness and uh well, technically he adopted the darkness. <laughs> um <laughs> but um really adopted it. <laughs> born into it. So he adopted the darkness. But he is still a man of the dark and he uses the dark for good and i think it's interesting that he is in this very dark universe and again uh nobody sets the scene of feeling like i'm in a comic book and i really like this feeling that he gives um by being in tim burton's gotham city mary did you want to expand on anything Uh, sure one of the things that i really think is characteristic of probably all the Tim Burton movies that I've seen is so when I'm watching the movie I feel like I'm in a very different uh, reality I don't feel like I'm you know just in a different city I feel like I'm in a different a place time different universe altogether that's just slightly different um, architecture slightly different lighting slightly different styles are slightly different and that's not necessarily the same from Tim Burton movie to Tim Burton movie um, I would say Edward Scissorhands has the same sort of vibe where I feel like this is a different place and and time that I'm travel to when I watch the film this ha- movie has the same effect for me um, and I think that uh, really helps to support the idea Russell mentioned where it feels like a comic book it feels like these characters just pulled right off of the comic book page and I mean, I think it's important to look to where he is in his career. He is on fire. He did Pee-wee's Big Adventure, as we mentioned, <laughs> at 1985. Um, Beetlejuice, uh, obviously, is a classic, 88. And then Batman, 1989. Edward Scissorhands, 1990. And then uh, 1992, is this is where he lands. So, I mean, he is on absolute fire. And he continues that streak because he follows this up with The Nightmare Before Christmas the next year, uh, which he's not the director, but he wrote and produced it. Um, So uh, he doesn't have a misstep for quite some time. When he missteps, it's painful. Planet of the Apes uh, remake was still pretty painful. And the Willy Wonka thing, I would prefer not to um, acknowledge. But overall, Tim Burton is one of my favorite directors. And this movie... Coming back to it reminded me of why I love Tim Burton so much. Well, I, I, I like his diversity because in, in between those last two you just mentioned, but one of my favorites of his is Big Fish. Uh, wonderful piece of storytelling and artistic in its own right. Very different direction for him, but very interesting movie. Anyone who hasn't caught it, I recommend going and seeing it. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of information out there too that uh, he was... Uh, rumored or there were talks of him doing a Superman movie, which I would normally be like, yes, sign me up for that. Uh, I mean, post Christopher Reeve, but uh, apparently it would have been Nicolas Cage being Superman. And I said, perhaps it's best that we left that one alone. Yeah, unfortunately, I I have to agree with you on that. Yeah. But I mean, the cinematography is great. They use, they use, uh, I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that here in the atmosphere uh, as we transition into that. But uh with the atmosphere, he a lot of this is old old fashioned movie making by today's standards. Uh, it's a lot of it's in the studio, a lot of it's models and small miniatures, a lot of it's uh, lighting and sets, and uh, so the stylized way that he creates the architecture of Gotham is something that he had full control over, and it wasn't just uh, 
going and shooting an older city like the Christopher Nolan Batman ones seem a lot more like you know Chicago Pittsburgh San Francisco New York which is where these things were filmed and uh, I what I love about it is how that as we talk about like the feel of the movie Gotham City here feels like something you know it's not a safe city it's not a nice city to be in but it's something that I as a viewer like to be taken into and immersed in what are you Mary you were talking about that a little bit earlier what is it about Burton's Gotham that you like in terms of the feel of it and the atmosphere. Um, I really um, love how the architecture is done. Um, the way it kind of is a brutalist architecture style, maybe a little bit of um, art deco to it, but the way the statues are created and the darkness of them, it almost feels in a certain way ancient yet modern at the same time and that sort of combination goes to together in a nice way because that that keeps the movie from being um linked to a specific city or a specific time period i feel like in fashion as well you have sort of um, more vintage looking styles you have um you know more vintage technology for instance king penguins writing with a feather pen Uh, but at the same time bruce wayne's using cds so we have this meshing of new tech and and um sort of a vintage feel that gives it a unique quality such that in 50 years from now it's still going to be ambiguous as to place and time and i think that's a strength of the movie i think it is good i mean it's uh, with the one exception of the compact disc this movie feels about the same as it did in 1992 and it would have felt believable that it could have come out another 20 years before it did there was a little bit of a tip of the hat uh, as to the men in coats and hats and stuff like that that might go back to the 40s of the heyday of some of these comics and stuff like that but i mean there's nothing grossly apparent anchoring it to that time either so um like you said uh, it, it creates a wonderful world that lives onto itself and it's aging really well because of that um john what do you think about the atmosphere. Well, uh, I'd, I'd like to go back to what you mentioned a little bit about. I love his use of small-scale models, and it's almost like he took from his previous film, Beetlejuice, where you noticeably are seeing small models of things in and out of the, of the movie. But uh, a lot of the times, if you take a really close look, you can tell it's a small model. But honestly, as a kid, I couldn't have... T- been able to tell the difference at all and and i think that's wonderful and i'm glad mary brought up the statues because that's something i noticed as a kid and now it actually almost has a bit of a dystopian feel to me and uh it does have that kind of old but contemporary kind of feel and i really feel like this kind of led to the development of honestly one of my favorite cartoons of all times uh, right after this the batman animated series which had the very same feel and i, I feel too. like yeah i feel like if tim burton hadn't hadn't done it this way that show either wouldn't have been made or not made in that way and it is still even if you watch it to this day the animation is wonderful so i i, I think he made gotham this dark but also somewhat a, a hopeful place uh it, it's interesting you know focusing around the holidays at the time um, but even like the, the, the cat statue sculpture for the Shrek stuff, it, it, it has this kind of fifties feel to it. It's, uh, but it somehow still feels modern. Uh, so I, I, I think the atmosphere 
that he created was just fantastic. Yeah, I agree. And an interesting piece of note to talk about the atmosphere is, I mean, it, it reflects off, uh, obviously, the comic books. But Gotham City, um, you know, DC, one thing I love about uh, DC comics over Marvel comics is they create their own geography and there's its own United States. And Gotham City is based on 1940s Chicago. So it's a town of mobsters. It's a town of corruption. It's not safe. And it's large. And, um, and so... I, I think that, again, that 1940s element of what it was based on in the comics, Burton picks up on and then adds to it beautifully. And so um, just uh, it, it's a, it's a, uh, it has a sense of darkness to it. And Yeah, it has a sense of darkness, but also has a sense of cold. You feel like it's winter. It's Christmas season. There's snow everywhere. There's icy water. It, it does... Um, I don't always notice the season in a movie, and the winter season is a big part of the way this movie feels. Yeah, and we we talked. Oh, go ahead. Oh, it's like it's like did they build the zoo in an Arctic place? Because it never seems warm there. How could you ever have any warm animals there? Like, well, where would the lions be? <laughs> well, they completely uh, did this movie in a studio, but as you pointed out, they did have uh, several of the penguins are real. Some of them are puppets. Some of them are. Uh, animated uh but uh to accommodate them they did use a refrigerated stage so none of this stuff's on site and that just shows you i i am not pulled out of it at any moment none of it looks fake in fact a lot of it looks fantastic the forced perspective on the buildings where they he warps the proportions of the buildings to make them look taller or like the street has a dramatic effect by putting bright lights down the street and then it gets dark as these buildings seemingly skew up and it's like batman looking down surveying his city i, I really love that that almost gives it a a, a very metropolis like feel like the the old uh, movie metropolis yeah. where they're using you know some of these techniques for the first time but they embrace it and it become and they they use light and dark in a very intentional way to create a certain feeling and actually embrace the fact that you know they're creating all of this with models um and that actually brings me to another point i wanted to mention about you know the look and feel of the film is because he's using these models and um artwork as backdrops you see it in the sort of distant views of the city you also see it at some moments where you're looking at uh wayne manor um it looks like a painting. It actually looks like a comic book frame on a page with just a tiny bit of movement. Uh, and there's a scene where Danny DeVito is in what looks like a completely still frame, like a painting. He's the only thing moving or interacting. And there's the music and there's Danny DeVito and then there is a backdrop. And it really sets... Um, an art for f artful feel to the views and it also kind of at the same time highlights the things that tim burton intended to highlight yeah there, i wanted to point out a few set designs and just really give some big thumbs up the snowy park where the penguin is dropped in the very beginning and the transition of him flowing through the sewers uh is just phenomenal and then the sewer system where the penguin grows up and then has his base of operations it's just absolutely fantastic the vaulting looks architecturally impressive the lighting up on that does set a very uh eerie 
uh, feeling, the green waters that are around him. Again, it's comic booky, but it's just not goofy. And uh, the mood feels serious, but also uh, fantastic and amazing. It's just, it's a great ride. And then um, another one of my favorite pieces in the set design there had to do with uh, Selena's apartment, how it was just, everything was kind of this dingy, pale pink, and it was such a good contrast uh, when she goes under that scene where she snaps and becomes Catwoman where she tears everything up in the apartment and starts spray painting stuff black and stuff. So I thought that was a good, um, you know, you could call it like watermark. This is where her life is, and then they're going to come back to it. I've never seen a movie, and I've loved all the Batman movies and a lot of other comic book movies, but how cartoonish he made it, particularly the villains, but also realistic and empathetic, like, it's not over-the-top cartoonish. I mean, that leather suit, which apparently was hell on Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, just total hell, like, it gave her a comical feel, but realistic at the same time. I didn't feel like I was in a cartoon, but I could still see the cartoonish aspect of it. Uh, and uh, obviously the penguin is wearing a suit. I mean, his hands are deformed. Uh, I mean, he's eating fish raw even in front of his staff uh it, 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 this it's, movie... it's walking a fine line and he does it you know tim burton's running a tightrope at that point and he just does it great so you're right let's we got to talk we talked a lot about the physical environment but the, you're right the wardrobe on this is phenomenal mary what did you think about the penguin uh, uh, devito's wardrobe I, i'm pretty sure i, I remember being actually frightened of him <laughs> when i was seven or eight years old and i saw scary. this movie he's, um the black drool and the disproportionate costume padding it's all very unnerving um and it, it you know with his pale skin pointy nose darkened eyes um it really reminded me of uh the dracula character from the 1922 nosferatu movie um it really kind of looks like I, I immediately, you know, in watching it this this time around, immediately thought of that character. He's got those dark eyes, sharp teeth. There's a scene where there's blood dripping from his mouth. He's got those sharp fingernails. And to just go into Google the pictures of Nosferatu, that's it. Just looks to me like some inspiration was drawn from that movie for the creation of this character. So. What was that actor's name out of coincidence? So that's uh, that was going to be in my look for this moments, but uh, Max Schreck is the name of the actor who played Dracula in the 1922 Nosferatu. I think that's definitely no coincidence um, that the uh, that Christopher Walken's character is actually named Max Schreck in this movie. That's right. Um, I mean, John. I mean, Penguin was scary. Uh, what do you? What do you? Do you have anything to add on that one? I mean, she she definitely covered it for me. Like, yeah, I, I was about to say that that wraps up about everything I'd have to say about the penguin. I thought one thing that was really interesting was uh, that Michelle Pfeiffer said in an A and E biography that uh, her costume had to be vacuum sealed. Uh, that like she was fitted into it, and uh, she would actually get lightheaded as uh, she would perform in it. It it really is that tight. Um, so, uh, and they would actually she, cut it off of her, which, uh, was quite costly because they cost, uh, 
Um, thousand bucks. They cost a thousand dollars a suit, and she went through sixty over sixty cat suits. So, um, so well, she, she apparently couldn't hear herself, and so oh. Tim Burton had to tell her to to tone it down on saying lines and not screaming them because she just couldn't hear herself. They also asked her if uh, she had put the costume on for her husband later or not, but she uh, she said no. She didn't like. She did not care for the costume. So. <laughs> she, she said she never her. wants to see it again. I, I think that's what she said. I do not blame her. One thing I really did love about the costume was that as, in the process of her actually creating the costume, I, I I realized that she's taking a very typical female role domestic skill of sewing, and she's actually sewing wire into this suit, and it, she's really creating something that's traditionally fem feminine but also very intimidating at the same time and she i'm not really sure what that tool is but she pulls some sort of tool out of her sewing kit and uses that for the claws on her costume so i really felt like the suit and its construction was representative of her taking her 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 previous feminine role of selena kyle and transforming it into the Catwoman persona. Exactly. And, and I think it creates a perfect foil to Batman, who is, you know, Bruce Wayne is very wealthy, uh, has fancy suits, someone else to help him tailor it and fix them if need be, whereas she's just a blue-collar worker who's has she has to put it together herself uh, using the skills she has. She doesn't have a bat cave and mansion and unlimited resources to create a costume. And she creates a costume that is intimidating, but also quite seductive. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, Michael Keaton didn't have a picnic either. His uh, his suit uh, restricts head movement a little bit, which some people um, like to make fun of because he has to angle his shoulders. But I'll be honest with you, I like the way Keaton positions his body. It, it, it overcomes that 100%. And uh, again, his costume weighs over 55 pounds, so it, it, it's, it's, it's actually pretty heavy-duty stuff. Uh, you're not going to be jumping around and fighting with this stuff. So uh, people will sometimes give uh, you know Keaton a tough time for not being in superhero shape, but, I mean, uh, to be lugging 55 extra pounds of rubber around on your body, uh, you know, I, and it looks good, too, when he does it. So Yeah, I think this is actually probably my favorite favorite version of the batman costume because it feels so much like the comic book and the and the animated character translated to the big screen so i i like that about it and then oh they added nipples later it's like <laughs> why like like, like you said about the cgi uh, extra creatures in moss eisley katina do you feel like joel schumacher added a lot for you by nipples Oh, I, I mean, he added tons. I'm not going to say for me, but he added a lot. More is more, right? Yeah, yeah. More, more is more. Close up of crotch, crotch shots. I, I, I don't know what he was thinking, but neon lights. I, I, I guess it was trendy at the time, but. I don't know. Uh, Joel Schumacher's Gotham broken, is based on it. like a, a rave party in Tokyo. Yeah, I need some techno music going on. Like. You know, uh, we should mention this, and we didn't talk about this in the direction as much, but part of the reason Schumacher goes that way is this movie is actually not, even though it makes a ton of money and we all enjoyed it as kids, um, the... It was criticized. It was criticized it was by parents at the time as being too scary, too dark, not appropriate for children. 
uh, Burton's gone too far. And I don't know if they saw the first movie or not. I mean, I personally saw the first one when I was four, and I saw this one when I was seven, and I loved both of them and didn't have nightmares. Like, this is exactly what I wanted, and I really enjoyed it. But there is unfortunate course correction from the studio uh, coming out of this movie. And Batman Forever works largely because you get a funny man like Jim Carrey in there. And it becomes a different kind of uh, movie. But they steer even harder into that uh, with Batman and Robin. And and there clearly is a breaking point that is no longer... um, uh, That no longer works. It's just sad to say that really Arnold Schwarzenegger's Mr. Freeze was really the only at least kind of fun part of the movie. And that's pretty sad statement. Like, he is at least campy enough to have fun with. Michael Goo is still around at that point. He is still around. And I I, I hate that he had to wind out on that note. But that's, uh, uh, Batman and Robin. Yeah, Jim Carrey and, you know, Tommy Lee Jones at least helped salvage Batman Returns. But So, um... Well, one interesting thing, like I said, this this has most of its feet in the old world, but there are also computers used in this. Uh, the penguins I mentioned earlier, uh, some of them were made to mimic the motions of specific real lead penguins and then translate that to the animated other penguins. And then some of them are also puppets as well. As And again, there are some that are real birds in the set. And they had a hard time finding these, uh, these birds uh, that they could use for the uh, movie. And I believe that these came from London. So, or uh, yes, London. So they're British penguins, which the only thing fancier than a penguin is, is a British penguin. (laughs) Um, So um, what do we think about the soundtrack? We've talked a lot about the feeling and the atmosphere here. Danny Elfman, again, is a huge part of what we love about the feel of this movie. I have a feeling. Um, Mary, I know you're an Elfman fan. Is this this a win for you? No, absolutely. Um, I would say that uh, Danny Elfman is my, you know, favorite um john williams is the only one who might top him at moments but i think that in a movie like this elfman is absolutely what you want because of the the fantasy like feel that he brings to his music um i can just put on a uh, pandora danny elfman station and just listen to that all day long because um there's just so something so timeless about his pieces have you adopted the darkness? <laughs> uh, John, what do you think about Elfman? Oh, I, I think it's fantastic. And, I, you know, for me, especially, you know, for, from the first one, like, it, that's like the opening Batman music from the first one. That is the quintessential Batman music for me. And I think Elfman and... Tim Burton, I, I think they just work really well together. And apparently, from what I understand, is uh, Elfman, uh, they were skeptical to hire him at first for the original one, but he worked very hard on this. Uh, seven days a week, 12 hours a day. Um, and it's almost operatic, like, in a lot of parts of the movie. And he's very good at capturing this dark theme, these... Uh, voices and everything, but also like kind of having some lighter moments and the points that he has to. Um, and, and there was a lot of strain in with Burton and Elfman to create a score for the sequel. And I, 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 I think that that probably held to make a 
better soundtrack overall. And uh, sometimes you have to butt heads a little bit to create something great. And uh, the, the music, it just it fits so well in every part. Uh, e even at the end there in the sewers, uh, it, it just captures the emotion very well. Absolutely. These are two of my, uh, sorry, this and the first Batman movie are two of my favorite uh, scores for movies. They're, they're really up there for me. Um, again, with John Williams and Star Wars and Indiana Jones. But uh, yeah, I, I love this one. Um, before we go on, is there anything else you want to add about the atmosphere? I think it's maybe maybe we transition into look for this. Yeah, I, I, I think I've said about as much about the atmosphere as I can. Yeah, and it's it's definitely one of the strong suits of this movie. Um, Mary, do you do you have any look for this moments? Um, yeah, we talked about one of my look for this moments already with the Max Shrek thing. Um, I wanted to also point out um, the sewer scene. Um, there's a scene that connects. I didn't notice the first time, or second or even maybe even third time I watched this movie. Um, but there's the scene where um, Selena Kyle actually puts the bird in her mouth and the bird is in a cage. Uh, you know, the penguin's actual pet bird is, and she puts it in her mouth. And, you know, I, th I didn't think too much about that after that. Um, but she, but so later, uh, the penguin actually puts Max Shrek in a bird cage that looks exactly the same, but is human size located in the sewer. So I thought in that moment, okay, so in for the penguin, Max Shrek is actually his pet. He's using him. You know, here is this millionaire who thought he was the one in control. And now the penguins actually put him in a bird cage. So I thought that was a fun little moment that connected in the movie. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give a little more information about the penguins here. I was, I was a little bit off when I said London. So, uh, actually, the production wanted to use king penguins, but the only tame ones in captivity were in a bird sanctuary in Cotswold, England, which is uh, out in the countryside. So it's, they weren't they weren't from London. Uh, but the birds were flown over to the United States in a refrigerated hold of uh, the plane, and they were given their own refrigerated trailer, their own swimming pool, a half ton of fresh ice fish each day, uh, and uh, they would come straight from the dock. So good quality fish. And even though the temperature outside was pretty hot at that time. Uh, they kept the studio at the 35 degrees to keep the birds nice and happy around the clock. And uh, the birds really seemed to enjoy their uh, experience there uh, following their stint in Hollywood. Uh, most of them went on to produce eggs and, uh, you know, mated and uh, were a sure sign of uh, contented penguins. So happy penguins. Hmm. All right. Well, I, I, I'd like to point out a couple of couple of things. One thing I found kind of interesting in reading it is that uh, Batman actually doesn't wear boots in the movie. He was actually wearing Air Jordans, really? Air Jordan 6s, uh, connected to an upper, which gave it a boot-like feel. So maybe it's the shoes. Um, but uh, well, one other thing I kind of found interesting uh, in reading about it, and we've already mentioned that it was kind of considered to be too dark uh, by a lot of people, uh, especially parents. Those parents uh, are wrong. It's awesome. <laughs> but interestingly enough, out of the original four films, it's the only one that doesn't include a reference to the murder of Bruce Wayne's parents. All the other three do, but not this one. And that's definitely one of the darker sides of Batman. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's a that's a that's a fun find. So, um how does this movie affect you? Like when you watch this, like does it remind you of any stories from your life or anything like that? Like what does this movie how does this touch you? Married? Oh, this is this is a big one for me. Um I'm very uh sort of connected with the character of Catwoman after watching this in the last couple of weeks. Um the scenes, the scene where she is in the conference room and she uh, is treated so badly and disrespected so badly is actually very hard for me to watch. Um, it is a scene that's played over so many times in my own life, um, you know, as an architect uh, in a field that's still not female dominated. It's still very, uh, very much a male dominated field. Um, and, you know, actually tears came to my eyes when I was rewatching that scene because I felt like her. Uh, and so I, I'm very connected with how, where, where Selena Kyle's anger comes from because I feel that same, uh, I, I very much relate to that and feel the same sort of thing. So that's also the character that I obviously identify with most in the movie because I literally feel what she's going through. Um, and there's been so many times when I uh, just felt um, betrayed by men in authority figures. There have been times, you know, there's the scene when the, the penguin promises um, that the ice princess is only going to be scared and he really does kill her instead. And, you know, you know, Catwoman says, I thought you were just going to scare her. And she's betrayed by the penguin in that moment um, because he lied to her. So I've felt that in a professional setting, you know, obviously not with, you know, in a life or death situation, but certainly felt that I was, you know, just completely lied to and taken advantage of. And, and so I very much relate to her character. And I think this is a very uh, relevant movie now in the, the Me Too era where people are starting to kind of wake up to this stuff. So I would love for this movie to be re-released, actually, um, to capture a, a new generation of, of young women who are going to feel the same way about Selena Kyle and, and really be, um, you know, connected with that character, even though she takes it too far. <laughs> are you tempted to go blow up a building, uh, you know, blow up a department well, store? She, she, she takes it too far, but I do understand where her character comes from. And when, you know, she's standing in the, the, the department store window, you know, she has tears in her eyes and Bruce asks, comes by and asks her what's wrong. And she says she scares herself. You know, that, that's a very real feeling for women uh, and in, in today's world, and just as it was then in the 90s when this movie was made. So I think it's just very uh, something that, it's, that any young woman would connect with. Yeah, that's a very, and I mean, that's a well-constructed character for sure. John, how did this movie touch you? Uh, well, it, it it's a little bit in the same way Mary was talking about. I, th I think she hit everything, uh, probably much more on a personal note as far as uh, Selena Kyle and Catwoman, but really all three of our characters with alternate identities, um, it just shows how different people react to bad things that happen in their life. You know, Batman uh, had his parents taken from him, and I find it so striking that first scene where we see him, he's just sitting in his study just basically waiting for the bat signal. Like it, it's totally dominated his life at that point. Uh, like he just doesn't really care about his life as Bruce Wayne anymore. And uh, I, I, I wish I could say that most people would 
have the ability to remove themselves from the equation and realize that they have the ability to make things better and dedicate their life to it. But uh, I think Michael Keaton does a great job just kind of sitting there brooding in that study, just waiting for that bat signal to, to pop up in the sky. And then, uh, you know, even with the penguin, I mean, being thrown in a sewer by your parents, you just can't help but I'd imagine be angry about that being rejected by society. And I know he spends that to his advantage later, but uh, that would certainly create anger and resentment in just about anybody's heart, I would think. And, uh, you know, a lot of these, and then Catwoman, you know, as Mary kind of expounded upon more than I I probably could. Uh, It's just so many bad things have happened to these people and they each react in their own way. And I particularly like how it makes Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle's characters. That's probably what helps them be attracted to each other. I mean, although Batman seems to really dig the bad girls, uh, I think he can identify with her more because he realizes something really bad's happened to her and he knows what that feels like and has a, personal not only attraction but just understanding of that feeling that they've been wronged and uh but then also I, i'd like to say the unsung hero is alfred i love alfred he's great <laughs> he, he he's just he, he he always has a witty remark to come back to put bruce wayne in his place when he needs to and uh he's just always there cold. for him <laughs> yes yeah, so it's supposed to be called like don't you know what you're talking about uh and, and so it, it, I guess it affects on a lot of levels that it's important to know that in a lot, a lot of people's lives, things have happened to them and everybody reacts differently. And the more we can get to know to understand the things that have happened to them and try to help them, uh, the better we can really help not just them, but society around us. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to follow up uh, the penguin in particular. I mean, I can't imagine physically scaring people that much because just even growing up um, pretty normal, uh, I mean, I wasn't particularly popular. You know, I got picked on, uh, you know, the masses sort of reject you and you do develop resentment towards the rest of the world and you care about those few people in your life like John or Mary or my family and stuff like that. But then you start to build up anger towards masses of people uh, and they don't necessarily deserve it. And as you grow up, you realize that the people also grow up as well and they become kinder and stuff as time goes by. But there's a, there's a part of me that still identifies with how the penguin being ostracized would be so angry at the world. And then simultaneously, I love Batman who is a hero who shapes himself out of the darkness. He finds the mystery and complexity and the power of the dark. If I were a hero, I'd want to strike fear and villains and i would you know want to use the dark as well and uh i think burton uh adds batman to another hero that uh you know all the outcasts all the kids in art class the goth kids the freaks with the black shirts and the piercings of the world are gonna take a liking to because that's who i think tim burton speaks most to i think he i think he's well received everywhere but those people who feel outcast just really identify with with Tim and his art and I think Batman is just like 
Jack Skellington or um, you know Edward from Edward Scissorhands. I think this is another one of his. This is a this is a hero for those who are pushed outside. So. Yeah, and I, I, although it wasn't this movie, it was the first Batman movie. I I think you can really tell that it's like Bruce Wayne is never going to have a happy or normal life. And I, the one scene I remember from that first movie is just when Vicky Vale wakes up and sees him, and he's literally just hanging upside down because that. What makes him feel comfortable? Like I don't know what human would like to do that, but that's clearly a sign that he doesn't have that human side of him anymore. It's my favorite time. How about some superlatives? You guys ready? Oh yeah. All right. First one, the MVP. Mary, who's your MVP? Well, I have to preface this with uh, Michael Keaton being my. MVP of all Batmans because he's definitely my favorite Batman, but I'm gonna have to give my MVP to Michelle Pfeiffer in this case. I feel that this is really her movie and she really shines in it, even though she's technically a villain character. Um, I feel like she is in many ways the protagonist um, in, in even though in, in Batman allows her to really kind of take the spotlight here. It's a good pick. John, MVP. This is possibly the toughest uh, MVP I've had to pick yet, but uh, I I have to go with Michael Keaton. Um, I think he illustrates that brooding part of him so much, but honestly, the scene where he's confronting Max Shrek with his uh, report and everything, just the way he acts and even stands up to him, and Christopher Walken is taller than him, everything, but when he throws his report, totally across the room perfectly at him just he he can play bruce wayne and batman so well uh i don't know maybe it's his close to pittsburgh upbringing but he's got some no nonsense about him that i just don't think you can repeat and his subtle facial expressions are just so good even in that when selena kyle comes back in and max shrek is surprised to see him you see like an awkward smile from michael keaton but it's not over the top but just just enough. No, I'm with Mary as well, and I mean, I, I really love Michael Keaton. He's my favorite Batman, and I, I and that's no knock on Christian Bale because he's good too. But uh, I, I this was my favorite Batman. Like John, and I had a hard time with my MVP. I uh, gave strong consideration to Tim Burton. It was very hard uh, to make this choice, but I ended up giving it to Danny DeVito because the his portrayal of the Penguin is actually very scary it is he truly transforms himself some of it's the makeup but i mean the way he chooses to like drool on himself with that black drool and the snarls that he makes and you know uh he is just creepy he is absolutely very very scary and um uh just a true transformation there so that's scene where he bites his little image consultant's nose the laughs he's making like the fake laughs are great. And apparently he didn't really need any direction with most of his stuff, but he, he would have been my number two pick. I'm glad you brought him up. He was wonderful. Yep. I've got to give props to him for eating that raw fish. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it was sushi grade. Um, but he, there were five people I could have easily picked for MVP on this. Like, the, It's a sign of a good production, and that's what this is. Exactly. Best supporting actor, Mary. 
Um, because I went with Michelle Pfeiffer for my MVP, I've got to give supporting actor to Danny DeVito for all the same reasons we just talked about. Okay, John, best supporting actor. Well, I I, I had to go a little bit off the track. I I, I kind of wanted to do that, but I got to go with Michael Go as Alfred. Uh, he modeled it apparently after a butler he he knew in real life when he was younger, and uh, I. To me, I loved Michael Caine as Alfred. I like Jeremy Irons as the current Alfred, too, but Michael Goh will call, kind of always be my Alfred. Yeah, he kind of set the standard, didn't he? Yes. Yes, he did. I'm with. I'm going to double what John said. Uh, is it goo or go? I, I say go, but maybe it's goo. Maybe we should say both, just in case. I'm going to stick <laughs> with goo for now. If, uh, if, 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 if you like to side with Russell and Michael Goo, uh, let me know if you want to side with John. Uh, and we, can, we can make a poll what yeah. you'd all prefer if you'd like yeah reach out to us and let us know on facebook whether you're a goo guy or a go guy so so hidden gem mary well um there was a character actor in here that i've quite loved for a while so i'm gonna pick vincent chavelli uh, he he plays the organ grinder. He is the the one of the creepy uh, henchmen of uh, the penguin. Um, I love this character. Uh, he played Lanny in the Humbug episode of the X Files in 1995. That's probably where I first saw him. That's the Fiji mermaid. Uh, the, yeah, the Humbug Fiji, doesn't remind Fiji me of mermaid that. episode. It's definitely a fan favorite. Um, He's also in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, but probably probably what most people know him from is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He's just a great actor in everything I've seen him in. He's distinct looking. He's got very dark and set eyes. Like, you know. Right, are, yeah. right. And he just definitely has this ability to, you know, be just a, a slightly bit lovable while being unhinged. And I think he's just a, a great character actor. John? Hidden Jim. Well, um, actually, I have to go same as uh, Mary on this. Uh, uh, and actually, uh, it was a different movie I kind of originally remember him from. Uh, he played Mr. Vargas in uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is a pretty funny role for him. But also, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, but as far as character actors go, he's one of those people. He'll be in a movie. You don't know his name, but you can recognize him and uh Ebert even said that he had a, a way of slipping into films without people knowing his name, but they remember his performance. Right, and, his uh, IMDb so I, is quite long. He has been in a yes. lot of memorable roles. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm with Mary completely on that one. Yeah, for my hidden gem, I'm actually going to go with uh, Jan Hooks and Stephen Whitting. They are the um, image consultants that they bring yeah, in. They are just was... so phony and lay it on so thick. I actually quite like them. Uh, I, I'm a big SNL fan, so Jan Hooks was on SNL and what, for me is the peak era in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and, uh, you know, Stephen Whitting, I'm not as familiar with him, but he just nails it by just being like he really, you know, when, when the penguin bites his nose, uh, you know, uh, he he kind of deserves it. So <laughs> could be worse. My mm. nose could be gushing with blood. <laughs> I, I, I think, the faces he's yeah, making yeah. while he's saying that is great. But <laughs> What and, do you and, mean by Tim Burton's always great at working in these sort of really obnoxious little side characters, and I think that they kind of, there's characters like them in other Tim Burton movies, and they nailed it here. Definitely. And she was also in uh, Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. I, if I recall, she was the host of the Alamo tour, 
and she was just wonderfully over the top in that as well. Yeah, Tim Burton goes back to good people again. You know, he 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 likes to uh, he likes to come back to people who have treated him well. Uh, recast who would who uh, if you had to recast somebody in this movie, who would it be, Mary? Oh, that's always a hard thing to do. But I went with uh, Pat Hingle, who played Commissioner Gordon. Um, I've always really liked the com- character of Commissioner Gordon, especially in the cartoon version, but also really love Gary Oldman's version in the newer movies. Um, I would say that the uh, uh, if I had to put someone in his place, I'd like to see what Peter Boyle might have done with the Commissioner Gordon character in this type of film. I think he could have carried off both the sort of grumpy kind of vibe, but also brought a lightheartedness and it's sort of the right tone that might work well in a Tim Burton movie. So if I had to pick somebody, I might go with him. Hmm. Okay. I might have more on that here in a minute. But John, recast. Well, this one's interesting, and it might sound like a tiny bit of a cop-out, but it's uh, in the research I kind of found. Uh, though I thought Paul Rubens did a fine job as the father. They uh, apparently originally wanted Burgess Meredith, who played the uh, Penguin in the old... 60s tv series uh to play the father but unfortunately unfortunately he had health problems and uh which you know led to his death in 1997 uh but that would have been the only thing after reading that and seeing that paul rubens as i said i think did a fine job but it would have been really wonderful to see burgess meredith in there yeah um i'm with mary pat hingle and commissioner gordon is the one that i'm going to recast um I, I don't know why I might have gone a little bit darker than she did. So instead of Peter Boyle, I would go with Gary Sinise. Okay. I'd go a little bit younger uh-huh. and like uh, get him, I don't know. I just, I could see him doing, uh, you know, I'm tough, you know, but like, you know, I, I, like he's a good guy who's anchored in this, but mm-hmm. like in a very mm-hmm. corrupt system and stuff like that. And perhaps I'm transitioning what the animated character, uh, from the animated series or from the Christian Bale series is. But, um, I, I did not like the de-emphasis of that character in Burton's movies. It's one of the very few criticisms I have. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, best shot, Mary. Uh, this, th- it was really hard to pick a best shot. I went back and forth several times, but it ultimately went with uh, the scene where Cobblepot's baby carriage is floating down the sewer. Um, it's so artful. It creates this, um, opportunity for transition, almost as though we're traveling into this comic book fairy tale that Tim Burton has created, and, and, and you're on this path down that sewer with the baby carriage, um, the eerie blue light really sets up this fantasy, this cold fantasy feeling in that scene. Um, it was So it was really hard to pick. I had a, a number of other things picked out that I might use, but that's going to be my pick. John, best shot of the movie? Um, I have to go with toward the end of the movie. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know why I found this kind of touching, really, but... Uh, when the the penguin finally succumbs to his death, the uh, when when the six penguins uh, carry him almost pallbearer style to the water, uh, I kind of found it touching, and uh, I thought it was a wonderfully shot scene with with penguins. I, I, it, it made me actually feel kind of sad for him at the moment, even though he was the villain doing despicable things at the at the time. Um, my top shot's going to be the moment where Catwoman 
goes out the window and the pink neon lights from her room are busted out and she's uh, the sky's full of really really blues and blacks and you know uh, she's framed in this long shot of this black silhouette coming out of this very pink glowy room so I, that's my favorite uh shot a very pretty movie though so there's a lot of good choices uh, and yes. Mary's choice was very close to mine. I, I'm glad she brought that up. I could talk about both now. So, um, <laughs> best scene. Actually, that your uh, best shot moment is part of my best scene. I I think that the whole scene where Selena is trashing her apartment and destroying everything that represents that fake persona that was Selena Kyle in the very pink very girly apartment she's spray painting t-shirts that have cute kittens on them and uh putting stuffed animals down the disposal um she's really transitioning in to this more true version of herself that is catwoman um and just sort of ends in that moment with the the words the the light that used to say hello there and she's broken the o and the t and now it says hell here and that's really how it's been for her the whole this whole time she's just really saying it for the first time yeah i'm gonna hop in there because that's that's mine too she nailed it and uh, i think it's a really well set up scene because they show her coming in uh and shows you how uh sad her life is that you know she's alone she doesn't have uh, a real boyfriend her mother is very hard on her she doesn't have a very nice apartment she comes home she doesn't feel good about herself her only friend is her cat and so all of this is set up so well just in a few scenes prior to this and then it's contrasted she comes in and she's disheveled she's trying to find her normal she's trying to go to the answering machine she's trying to she's trying to regain what was going on after she was nearly murdered by uh Christopher Walken, who's, yeah, I can push you out a window. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it's a, it's a great scene. It's, it, it, it's, I remember that, of the scary things in this movie, I remember seeing her as a kid. I was like, man, she's losing it. <laughs> like... She was a normal lady, but I don't think I feel safe around her anymore. I was scared by the penguin. He was scared by Catwoman. <laughs> I mean, the penguin was scary, too. But, like, I mean, it's just like you went from this, you know, approachable, nice woman. And then I was like, she was transforming in front of you. And, I mean, she's got the tears coming out of her eyes. I mean, she's shaky. I mean, she nails it. I mean, uh, this is why all those other Catwomen that they considered getting were... Uh, I'm glad they went with Michelle Pfeiffer. This is probably my favorite Michelle Pfeiffer role, by the way. So, and this I scene agree has, on that. And th this scene has a lot to do with it. So, John, I stole your thunder. Uh, best best scene. Um, I have to go back to what I kind of touched on before. It's actually the scene that begins where Bruce Wayne is showing Shrek the report and talking to him about the energy issues. And... Uh, I like how it leads into they're kind of getting into each other's faces. And I said, I, I liked that Bruce Wayne was shorter than Christopher Walken and wasn't afraid of him at all. And I do like that the pinstripe stripe suit that Shrek was wearing did have that Chicago mobsters feel. But then when Selena Kyle walks in and looks dis disheveled, I think all three of them just had such wonderful, subtle acting moments in that scene particular where she walks in all disheveled and Max is shocked that she's alive. Bruce is seemingly a little turned on. Yeah, and he's infatuated Selena, with her. Yeah, he, he just has... 
Michael Keaton just his little subtle smile, like it, it, it's just just enough to to notice that he's doing it to get Bruce Wayne out of his like kind of calm, cold demeanor. And uh, Michelle Pfeiffer is doing a great job, kind of as you, as you mentioned. This is my favorite role of hers, but all three of them in that scene, I think, just they both had wonderful subtleties in their facial movements and voices. Uh, j- just a wonderful scene. Maybe not as important plot-wise, but the acting there was very commendable. Best quote, Mary. Uh, well, again, this is a, this is a very hard one because there were a lot of very quotable moments. There but are. I I went with the the this thing that says how you know Batman pushes down Catwoman and she says how could you I'm a woman he says oh I'm I'm sorry I'm sorry. Then she throws Batman off the roof and says, as I was saying, I'm a woman and can't be taken for granted. Life's a blank. Now so am I. And that's just, I think, iconic of uh, the whole transformation of the character and the movie in general. Yeah. John, you can say it in the quote, by the way. If it's if it's high school, I, I thought I thought you would uh, uh, cut me out if I uh, no no uh, it's, it's family friendly but if you keep it you get you get one and you know I mean uh, you know it was in the movie it's 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 it literally is the quote so I mean uh, we let we let one or two slide so that would have been okay so. okay um, uh, I'll know for next time yeah John uh, well this one's kind of an exchange uh, and it's where the penguins in the sewer with Shrek and he said uh a lot of tape and a little patience make all the difference. That was a By good the line. way, how's Fred Adkins, your old partner? And Fred, Fred's actually, uh, I believe, is on extended vacation. He's, like, he's good, like good. And then he pulls out the the severed hand and he goes, "Hi, Max. Remember me? I'm Fred's hand. You want to grab any other uh, of any other body parts? Remember, Max? You flush it, I flaunt it. And it's kind of a reminder. It's like." Be careful what you throw away. Like, uh, that I almost went with that, John. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Um. So I and this is just walking, being walking, but this just really stuck with me. So later in the movie, uh, Batman pulls his mask off to reveal himself to uh, Catwoman to try and make her stop what she's doing, and uh, walking goes, Bruce Wayne, why are you dressed like Batman? And and uh, and then like Catwoman looks over because he is Batman, you idiot. Fair enough. That's good. I'm gonna shoot you both now. Mm-hmm. Bang! Wow. I'd like to bring up one more quote if I could, Russ. I yeah. think I think it's really key here. Um, at the very end of the movie, when uh, when Alfred's uh, taking taking Bruce home after this adventure. Um, and uh, Bruce says, Merry Christmas, Alfred, uh, and goodwill toward men, and pauses, and he says, and women, and that's when the credits roll. I think that also kind of sums up the theme of the movie here and the importance of the, the Catwoman character in this whole story. Yeah. It's time to rate the movie. Mary, do you want to go with your, on a scale of one to five, or sorry, a five-star scale, um, what would you rate this movie? Does it hold up? It holds up extremely well, especially in today's uh, political climate. Um, and I actually went ahead and gave this a five star. 
uh, after watch, I've watched it two times this week, and I feel like this has definitely uh, really gone high, much higher up there on my favorite movies of all time list. And yeah, maybe there's a couple of things like the fact that uh, uh, you can't use a CD like it's a record <laughs> and do a disc jockey like Bruce Wayne was doing. But other than that, I, I can't find a whole lot that I would change about this movie. So I'm going to give it a five. That's and it, it, it's that's very merited for sure, uh, John. Uh, it to sound like I'm stealing, but uh, especially considering this is a sequel, uh, which it's so hard to live up to an original that was a good movie, which the first Batman movie by Tim Burton was a fantastic movie. But I I have to go with a five on this. The casting was superb. The music superb. There's nothing about the movie really that I could really correct, and I even kind of illustrated in that uh, the only recasting I could think of is something that they wanted to do but couldn't. I I just think it was just about perfect as it is. That's interesting. Uh, I I went 4.5, which I had in my head coming into this 4 before I watched it, and I raised it up to 4.5. The only thing that keeps me from going all the way to 5 on this is that I feel like Walken's character perhaps because he's cast as such a big actor and the role does cloud things a little bit. Um, he's important to make the, 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 the plot move along, but, uh, things are so, so strong with the penguin Catwoman and Bruce Wayne that I don't necessarily feel as much of a, tight construction resolution and um what his role is in things and so um and i honestly uh i enjoy walking i i have fun at times it's unintentionally funny uh, as i just mentioned but uh so th- i feel like there could have been a little um tightening up there but uh i i nearly went five uh and i and to show you how much i did like it I went back and reevaluated my top one, or sorry, top 50 superheroes movie. Maybe someday it'll be 100, but it's a top 50. And I have Batman Returns at my number four. So uh, that's, it's my Ooh. number four superhero movie. Can I ask where Batman with Jack Nicholson is? It's number one. All right. Good man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, two Spider-Man movies sandwich those two movies, so. Uh-huh. My, my, mine's Catwoman with Halle Berry, by the way, number one. So, Okay. Okay. <laughs> there had to be one person out there who felt that way. I figured it was Halle Berry, but uh, turns out it was you. Uh, I've actually never seen it, but I just <laughs> oh, thought I that have. would be fun. I have. Oh, We're not that I'm kind sorry. of show where we go through and lampoon a whole movie, but it would make a heck of a it would make a heck of an episode for somebody who does do that. So um so uh, let's talk about uh, what we're going to do next time, John. Uh, do you have a few choices for us? I do. And being the month of October, we are going to look at some scary movies. So I want a little classic on this. Uh, we have the original Halloween from 1978. 15 years after murdering his sister on Halloween night, 1963, Michael Myers escapes from a mental hospital and returns to the small town of Haddonfield to kill again. We also have the 1980 movie, The Shining. 
A family heads to an isolated hotel for the winter where an evil spiritual presence influences the father into violence while his psychic son sees horrific forebodings from the past and the future. And finally, we have 1982, the movie Poltergeist. And a family's home is haunted by a host of ghosts and the daughter is abducted by seemingly a television. You've picked some really good ones here. Uh, those are good ones, aren't they, Mary? Yeah, that's a hard pick. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Um, nice thing is you can't go wrong. You really can't. And I'm going to go. I've seen all of these already. So I'm going to probably go with Halloween, the John Carpenter Halloween movie. Um, I really love that one. So I'd love I'd be a fun one to return to. Let's go back to Haydenfield. All right. Haydenfield it is. All right. Well, once again, thank you so much to Mary for joining us. We hope you had fun. Oh, yes. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for all of you for listening. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, give us a like on Facebook. Please, please, please review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. That helps grow the audience and gets the podcast exposure. Um, and then if you want to write to us and have any suggestions, uh, reach us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. As always, thanks for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. John? Yeah, thank you all. And I can't help myself, but got to go with a, have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? <laughs>